Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. At the intersection of neuroscience, molecular biology, and computer science, researchers are making slow but steady strides to reverse-engineer the human brain. We have new imaging technologies that enable us to scan brains at unprecedented resolutions. And informed by that data, a combination of optical and genetic and other techniques will allow for the precision control of specific neural circuits almost as easily as flipping on and off light switches. As we finally uncover the mysteries of how the brain works, the next step will be to apply that knowledge to our daily lives and to understand and improve the way we think. In this episode of For Future Reference, we talk with Melina Unkefer. Um, turns out we use all of our brain all of the time. <laughs> a Future for Good fellow at Institute for the Future and an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at UC San Francisco. Melina also co-founded and is CEO of a nonprofit called the Institute for Applied Neuroscience. All right. Um, so could you start by just t- telling us your name, what you do, and where you do it? Sure. So my name is Dr. Melina Unkefer, and I do many things. <laughs> um, I have been told... Instead of saying that I wear many hats, I actually wear a many-pointed hat because it's all in service of a very common goal. Um, But half of what I do is I am a professor at University of California, San Francisco, and I also direct the education program at a brand-new center there called Neuroscape, um, which is a center that's designed to use technology to uh, really up-level what we're doing in... um, of cognitive neuroscience. Um, and then I also am the executive director and co-founder of a nonprofit called Institute for Applied Neuroscience. It's a science for good nonprofit that is geared towards translating what we know about the science of learning into practical applications that teachers can use um, to bring into their teaching practice. Fantastic. So you mentioned that you do um, you wear a many-pointed hat. What what problem are you trying to solve with your research, or is there one theme that ties it all together? So I actually think that there is a large problem that needs to be solved, not just by research, but also outreach um, in the form of um, policy and practice uh, work. And the overarching question is really, how do we really empower everybody, not just young students, but how do we empower uh, students in the classroom as well as lifelong learners to um, have agency over their life? How do they, how do we allow people to kind of do whatever it is that they want to do in their life by understanding how their mind works? And it turns out we have a ton of information about how the mind works that is practical and useful. (laughs) A lot of it isn't practical and useful, but there is some that is practical and useful, um, that can be, that can be used to, to empower our students, 
um, again, whether our students are eight or 80, um, to understand how the world works and understand their place in the world and how they can increase their social mobility or increase their agency by, um, by understanding kind of the rules of the road. And so I feel like we need to do this by not only um, using evidence, using kind of a, a research-backed approach to understanding how the world works, but also translating that information, making sure that it doesn't just stay within the echo chambers of academia, but actually gets out into um, helping solve social problems. And so that's where my work in the nonprofit comes in. So you, as a neuroscientist, I mean, this is sort of a huge uh, uh, area <laughs> that you're that you're exploring here. Um, what led you to, to this path? Mm, that is a great question. Well, it's a little bit circuitous, as most paths are. Um, the primary path that led me to neuroscience was actually my grandmother's diagnosis of Parkinson's when I was just a young um, teenager. And, you know, as her, as her biology started to kind of change, who she was and how she showed up in the world changed. And that really kind of struck me as a young person that how we show up in the world is really constrained by our biology. And that if we want to change how we show up in the world, we could probably do it by changing our biology. Uh, and so it just, it created this just really kind of fascination, this strong fascination with understanding the, the interface between this meat suit that we wear <laughs> and how, how our expression um, is in the world. Um, and that led me to um, looking at how how we show up in the world is really about our memory and our memory of who we are and our kind of collection of memories of who we are is really the foundation of how we present ourselves and our personal identity. Um, and so if that degrades because of our biology, then who we are can degrade as well. And so that led me to the field of of learning and memory research, and then that ultimately led me to becoming the most boring person at parties because <laughs> every person who would find out that I studied how memory works would say, oh my God, I have a terrible memory. Tell me what I need to do to make my memory better. And I just got so absolutely bored with hearing myself speak that I started talking to my colleagues and said, you know, what do you, what do you guys say when, when people ask you how to improve their memory? And sadly, I got really dissatisfying answers from the top people in the entire world who understand the intricacies of learning and memory it was really tough for them to translate that into a practical uh, set of things, principles that we could tell people. I mean, there are there certainly are principles that we can tell people, but the the people who were doing the really novel research were not actually the ones that were out there translating that information into um, helping people improve their memory or improve their learning. Um, and so then I started thinking, well, shit, if people don't, you know, if, if the common person is not getting this information, what about teachers? Are they getting this information about how people learn and how people are 
um, allowing themselves to um, to learn in a in a deep and and lasting way. And it turns out there's not a ton of that information that's being taught to teachers uh, in either pre-service teacher training or in-service professional development. And so that really led me to realizing that we need to have this. Um, we need to have scientists get getting out of the echo chamber of academia and actually translating their research into into practical applications and particularly in how people learn and explaining to teachers how people learn um, but not just having it be a one-sided thing because yes it's great and you know the ultimate mission is for us to uh, explain, you know, these billions of dollars of research findings, you know, how, how people learn, how do we explain that and, um, and turn that into practical applications that teachers can bring into their classrooms today. Um, but most importantly, it needs to actually be a bi-directional dialogue. It actually needs to not just be the researchers talking to the teachers and explaining what we know, but it also, we need to close that loop, have it be a bi-directional dialogue where the teachers who are the people with boots on the ground who are actually the ones who understand how people learn in the wild in the real world how if they can actually explain to us if they can talk to us about how people learn that can help the researchers then refine their research questions and it just creates this this nice bi-directional dialogue that up levels all parties involved that's fascinating, and honestly, it's a it's an admirable uh, uh, goal. Um, what are some examples, um, you know, from from neuroscience that you think um, educators um, and learners need to hear? Just a few, you know, surprising um, discoveries or, or insights that you've gleaned. We actually have a ton um, of things that have been found over the last you know, several decades, um, not just with neuroscience, but particularly with cognitive science. And then with the advent of cognitive neuroscience, <laughs> it gets even more fun. Um, but basically an, an understanding of how, how the brain itself learns um, has really given us some interesting insight into what we can do to kind of optimize our, our learning processes. One of the, one of the most, I think, topical things that's really interesting these days and, and is kind of a, a concern and promise, I think, of technology is the impact of technology and media on learning and how the ubiquity of our interaction with technology and media, how that interacts with learning. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of people who think that technology is going to kill the brain and there are all sorts of people that think that technology is going to save the brain and I tend to be an objective scientist and sit squarely in the middle and weigh the evidence and um, actually sit on a board um, called Children and Screens. It's the Institute of Digital Media and Child Development um, that works with the National Academy of Science to help kind of convene all of the top researchers um, on that are investigating the impact of digital media and technology on the brain. And one of the, one of the very, I think, most interesting things that it can tell us is the impact of blue light that comes from our screens. So blue light is uh, that short wavelength light that comes from our screens and is something that the brain thinks is 
the sunrise. It simulates the, the light that comes into our brains when the sun is rising. And so it not only goes to our visual cortex and tells us that there's something to be seen, but it also goes to our hypothalamus and tells our hypothalamus and the rest of our brain to wake up that now it's time to be alert and awake. And this is fabulous during the day. And in fact, um, people, students who are, there was a, a great study of, I think, 21,000 students, um, elementary school students across the country. And um, there was a, a study showing that the kids that learned in the sunniest classrooms, the kids that had the, the most access to natural light, um, actually learned much faster and much more effectively, I think, I think it's something like 25% faster gains in math and 20% faster gains in reading or something like that. Um, and that's also controlling for, you know, other factors that, c that could be going into the fact that these kids are having more access to sunlight, natural light. Um, so it's, so blue light, sunlight, natural light is great for the brain because it tells the brain to wake up and therefore it's much more alert and available for learning. Um, but turns out a lot of this blue light we're getting access to is coming from our screens at nighttime. And if you have a screen right in front of your face at 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock at night, it's still telling your hypothalamus to wake up. And so it interferes with our circadian rhythms and can um, interfere with our sleep cycles. And so that's one of the I think most interesting things that we have learned about how the brain learns that um, has that can have an immediate impact on how we interact with our world. And I have to I have to give this plug, even though I'm not involved at all in this company, but it is an incredible company. There's a company called Flux or F. Lux that if you put on if you put that on your computer it'll actually start to reduce the amount of blue light that comes from your computer screen over time and i know the iphone 6 has that function on your on your phone as well so if you have that don't disable it it's actually incredible for your brain and will help you get deeper and more effective sleep and we know that we need sleep because sleep is one of the most effective things for learning um, it not only, again, you know, an awake brain not only allows you to learn information better, but s the function of sleep itself is to actually consolidate the learning that's happened during the day. So it's like putting jello in the fridge. It is the, the thing that stabilizes the very unstable learning that's happened during the day. And so the deeper the sleep, the better the sleep, the deeper and stronger the learning that has happened during the day, the longer it'll persist over time. That's really interesting. I have that Flux program on my Macs, and I, I use it, and I appreciate it on my, my phone as well. Um, Melina, I, I think also interesting, um, besides the examples, are some of the myths about learning. Mm. I, I uh, met you last year, and you told me uh, a, a few myths about learning and memory, and, and one of them, I, I, I think this was you t talking about the, the, the right brain, left brain idea is really not all that it's cracked up. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I have a I have a fun post about that on Edutopia um, that I can point you guys to. But yes, the, there are there are actually a lot of myths of learning that um, can be damaging, quite honestly. Uh, so the the myth of left brain, right brain, um, turns out we use all of our brain all of the time. <laughs> and it's just like your heart. You use 
all of your heart all of the time. And it, it kind of ties into that. The other correlated myth, which is the myth that we only use 10% of our brain. Um, it would be a massively inefficient system if we only use 10% of this incredible organ. Um, and so we use 100% of our brain 100% of the time. It is massively interconnected. So we use our entire brain all of the time. There is a little bit of, um, of truth to this neuromyth in the sense that there is, there's some specialization in the brain such that, um, you know, language functions and, you know, kind of linear sequential kind of logical, um, mental calculation functions, um, can have some specialization in parts of the brain that are on the left side of the brain, but they can't, they can't do that, computation just by itself it, it needs to operate your brain is a massively interconnected system just like any organization you can't just have the accounting team working on its own it's always working with you know the other teams in the organization um and so it's it's important for us to to recognize that our whole brain is working all of the time because when we start thinking, oh, I'm a left brain thinker, or I'm a right brain thinker, we tend to start to put ourselves in boxes. And that's really where the harm can come from. So, you know, just having this kind of notion that we, that we only use our left brain to do logical, linear, sequential thinking, we only use our right brain to do, you know, creative, abstract thinking, that's not all that damaging by itself. Um, but in the context of identifying with, oh, I am a left brain thinker. Therefore, I am a linear sequential thinker. Therefore, I am not creative. If you give me a creative task, I cannot do it. I will not do it. That's where the harm starts to come in because we can start to put ourselves in boxes and start to cut ourselves off from opportunity and cut ourselves off from learning experiences that could actually enrich our lives and could, you know, lead to, you know, fuller, richer, deeper lives. Um, and, in, and the, the very last piece about that is that you can't do any anything that we think about as a as a linear sequential you know logical process. It always has a creative component to it. It always has an abstract component to it. It always has this kind of again massively interconnected thing in a set of things that needs to happen for that behavior to emerge. And it's so we're never just logical or just creative but rather there's a lot of creativity that goes into logic and there's a lot of logic that goes into creativity and so recognizing that we need all of these things and we can develop all of these things is a really important skill and a really important thing to remember so that we don't cut ourselves off from um, potential melina you talked a little bit about you know an area of research um, around um, young people and their exposure to media and screens um, overall. And Mark and I frequently have conversations. Our kids are, are you know, like most kids, uh, young kids, very, very uh, engaged by um, the screens um, around them. And, and we were saying how we hate to feel like we're playing screen cop all the time, um, but yet we feel compelled to do that. And, you know, there's so much conflicting evidence, it seems, about you know, what is too much, what is too little, um, I guess there's never too little screen time, <laughs> but what's too much screen time and, and what's recommended, um, you know, yeah. is the jury really still out on that? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's actually one of the reasons that I, that I sit on the board of the Institute of Digital Media and Child Development. Um, because, you know, and we work very specifically with a lot of federal agencies um, and national agencies, including the American Association of Pediatricians, who give the um, recommendations to, um, you know, pediatricians, uh, which then are, you know, kind of the, the mouthpiece of the recommendations around the country to uh, parents. Um, the jury is out a bit on something. So the problem is there's lots of research in some domains and there's very little research in other domains and it really kind of highlights the idea that we, we actually need a lot more funding to study the true impact of these technologies on the brain. Um, and these technologies are constantly changing. So it's really hard to understand the kind of long-term, long-lasting effects. But one thing that is a helpful thing to think about, instead of just thinking about the recommended amount of time that you interact with media and technology, but a useful frame that we're starting to to use and starting to get people to um, think about is thinking about... Um, Thinking about media and technology use as uh, the same way that you think about a your food diet. So thinking about your media diet, and you know there are certainly things that you could include in your food diet that would be unhealthy and unhelpful. And so we never think about okay, we want to recommend that our kids spend two hours a day eating. We would never think about that. We would never frame it that way. And so we shouldn't frame it the same way in terms of media and technology. So we don't want to say just two hours a day. Um, you know, we want to limit kids to spend just two hours a day with media and technology, but rather think about the quality and content and um, the way in which they're interacting with the media and technology. And specifically, you know, one thing that has been found to be very helpful is actually using media as a way to increase the social interactions in the family. So if you, if you use, you know, if you have children and you use an iPad to um, talk with your kids about the content that you're interacting with on the iPad, that's really helpful. And that can increase the, you know, the social cohesion in the family that can increase your um, relationship with your, with your child and, and really kind of build healthy, healthy relationships. Um, but one of the things that we caution against is using technology and media as babysitter, where you, um, and everybody does it, and we know this, <laughs> but trying to minimize the amount of time that we use technology as babysitter, um, where, you know, the technology is the, is the thing that we give to the child so that we can go do something else. Um, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing that technology is great for, but um, we would recommend that that is, um, you, that is not the, the primary way in which you use technology. Um, but then also thinking about the, the type of media and technology that the kids are using. So for instance, we know that action video games, so the, um, action video games specifically are classified as those video games. Um, they're typically the, the first and third person shooter games, unfortunately. So they often times have a lot of, um, violence associated with them. Um, but the positive things that we've found about action video games are 
that um, the nature of the game itself, because it's a, you know, it's an unexplored environment that they have to explore, they don't understand the, um, you know, the rules of the environment, they have to go kind of figure out the patterns of, um, you know, reward and, um, and peril in it, it actually, it builds this kind of metacognitive skill of learning how to learn. And it actually can develop the executive function in the brain. Um, for those kids and adults who are engaging um, with action video games for about five hours per week or more. Um, and that or more is obviously a very <laughs> large um, and ambiguous uh, figure, but um, the, the folks who have been studying the impact of action video games on the brain for the last 10 years or so have actually found some tremendous positive effects of action video games. Um, now there are negative effects of the violence associated with most of the action video games, but the fact that we know the architecture that is, or we're starting to uncover the architecture that is really positive um, within these action video games allows us then to create new games that have all the positive components that can help us build executive function, build core cognitive capacities, um, build this learning to learn metacognitive skill, um, and uh, keep out the negative things like the violence. Do you think that video game developers listen to this kind of research mm -hmm. when you report on it, or do they not care about it? It's a great question. I'm not in their I'm not in their heads, so I can't speak to whether they care or not. But there are certainly um, there's certainly movement in the right direction. I think there are some video games that you can now toggle, um, you know, the the degree of violence to lower lower degrees and there are certainly video games action video games specifically that are starting to be developed that don't have violence in them and so i do hope that we are uh i think pushing the field in pushing the you know the consumer um facing side of the field in the right direction but um you know ultimately it might it might be that the scientists need to partner with the game designers and create you know science-backed video games that, that have the positive components um, and not the negative components. Um, and ultimately, you know, we, we want to, we want to study, we want to make sure that all of these, um, that all of these games are being studied and the impacts of these games are being studied. And so there is a, a new movement in the academic and political spheres to start to compel um, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and philanthropies to start to, um, ensure that the uh, that the claims that are being made by any of these video games or cognitive training games or ed tech games are being rigorously tested and um, evidence is being used to um, ensure that we're not causing any harm. Melina, we have one more question for you, which is you do so much. And as we talked about earlier, um, you know, you have such a sort of a grand vision and, and, you know, huge goals for, for your research and what neuroscience in general can accomplish. What inspires you? What, what motivates you? You know, honestly, it's, it's multiple levels. I think every time I'm in a classroom doing any of our educational neuroscience research, um, what inspires me are the kids who get to see my incredibly phenomenal team of researchers who are all, you know, in their early 20s and they're, you know, Latinas and 
Asian Americans and African Americans, and they are they are these just adorable, beautiful humans who are, um, you know, my research team that is just so inspired by science and expi- inspired by, you know, what science can do to expand human potential. Um, and so I get to see the faces of these kids who see, you know, a 22 year old person in a lab coat who comes in and says, I hear you guys have incredible brains and we study brains using iPads, iPad games. We study your brains using video games. And this is how we do science in the 21st century. And so getting, getting them to, to see that science can be fun and interesting and beautiful. And then also that they have agency over their own brain. They can actually grow their brain by working hard and working strategically. And, and that regardless of where they were born in life, they can be whoever they want to be. That's the thing that really inspires me. But also it's the teachers who come in (laughs) and know that they are the ones who are the brain architects of these beautiful moldable brains that they have in their classroom, that these brains are, are still developing. They're, they're still jello and that the teachers are the ones that are creating a learning environment that can be massively supportive and can unlock the potential of that brain. And so it's the, it's the student that inspires me. It's my research team that inspires me. It's the teachers that inspire me, but also the people that I work with at the policy level, the, the folks in leadership at the U S department of education are some of the most dedicated and clever and committed people that I've ever met. And I'm sorry that a lot of them are politically appointed and will be cycling out um, at the end of this administration because they are just the type of people that we want to be setting the tone and leading the vision for our nation. It's just been incredible to work with them. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Have a good weekend. Great. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's fabulous to chat and hopefully I'll see you guys soon. We hope we see you soon. Yeah, totally, Melina. This was so much fun. Thank and have you. a great weekend. You know, Mark, anytime I talk to a neuroscientist, um, I'm always really inspired and enthralled um, by thinking about the complexities of the human brain. But it also reminds me, you know, how little we actually know about how our brains work. Yeah, I know. It's like the, the classic black box, right? Yeah. You just, uh, th- there are so many unknowns. And so the fact that she is like separating myths from proven methods for learning is is really like great groundbreaking stuff to have because there are so many. I mean, I'm sure you grew up like me hearing you only use 10% of your brain. And oh, I actually absolutely. believed it. Yeah. But then, I, I mean... When you think about it, that's ridiculous. Why would people or any organisms evolve to, to not be efficient like that? It's crazy. Yeah, but I also think, and and I like the idea that her her you know besides the research she's doing on neuroscience, um, this idea of being able to translate what it is that she's learning and what neuroscientists um, are starting to understand and and apply it to education, I think could have really tremendous 
impact because you know i as a parent of young kids i you know um i see some fantastic examples of of education but i also see you know how differently just my two kids learn from each other um you know and and you know that we don't really understand um how best um to to teach people really yeah i think that that to me was the thing that struck me the most was her interest in giving kids and and everyone tools so that they can learn how to learn i mean that's like that's key right there yeah absolutely it reminds me of what uh uh, our old friend timothy leary used to say about that you have to learn how to operate your own brain yeah exactly that's great and um uh, the idea that she you know talking about video games and it's like time limits and stuff like ask we're asking the wrong kind of questions it's more like you know the content, what they're getting out of it, is their media diet nutritious rather than, you know, spending two hours a day on videos or two hours a day eating. It's like, what is the content that you're consuming? And I think that that's going to become um, the only question to ask as, you know, screens really become pervasive. Um, You know, it won't be a question of really, you know, for better or for worse, it won't generally be a question of whether you're on or off the screen or whether you have screen time left or don't have screen time left because, you know, there will be very few opportunities to not be, quote-unquote, on the screen, really. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesco and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music. <laughs>